Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. After driving 2,021 miles and conducting many interviews, one place continues to stand out to me. That place is the iconic Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Most people will forever and rightly associate the motel with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968. However, the motel is also noteworthy because it stands out as a microcosm of the incredible social, historical, and entrepreneurial contributions Black Americans made that were captured in the pages of the Negro Motorist Green Book. Over the many years that the Lorraine Motel advertised in the Green Book, it evolved and became a local and national destination and survived urban renewal pretty much intact. Indeed, the full history of the motel and its founders reflects the complex story of America. During our visit to Memphis, my producer, Janae Woods Weber, and I met with Dr. Noel Trent, the Director of Interpretation, Collections, and Education at the National Civil Rights Museum, which is located at the motel. The emotions I felt visiting the Lorraine ranged from immense reverence to profound grief and sadness. As we toured the site with Dr. Trent, she unraveled some of the motel's complicated history for us with some delightful as well as some somber details. We are located in the historic Lorraine Motel. This is the location where Dr. King was assassinated at 6.01 p.m. on April 4th, 1968. But we are also so much more than that. We are a historically African-American hotel that was owned by Walter and Laurie Bailey. They purchased it in 1945. And so people like Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke, Jackie Robinson, Satchel page all stayed here in the Lorraine Motel. A lot of people don't know that two songs were written here in the Lorraine Motel. Wait to the Midnight Hour and Knock on Wood were written oh here. Oh my goodness, yeah. really? Yeah. 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 yeah, that's right. Oh my, oh my God, goodness. I love that. We're, you we're, better knock on, on wood. wood. <laughs> Yeah, so now I've always loved that song. And then when I learned that, I was like, oh, this has like a special meaning, right? Yeah. Um, So those are written here. I don't know what rooms. um... This is Driving the Green Book, and I'm your host, Alvin Hall. As Janae and I traveled the country on our road trip, a James Baldwin statement kept coming to mind. A journey is called that because you cannot know what you will discover on the journey, what you will do with what you find, or what you find will do to you. The discoveries we made at the Lorraine Motel were some of the most surprising and unforgettable. While it's now part of the National Civil Rights Museum and is often thought of as a place of mourning, During the civil rights era, the people who stayed at the Lorraine were symbols of black excellence and creativity. 
It was the place to stay if you were a black person traveling through Memphis. It's crazy, but it's wonderful. Right. Because right. those songs, Shaft, right? Hot Buttered Soul. Right. All of those albums that were released during that period of time, uh-huh. right? The people hung out here. The people hung out here. Mavis Staples and the Staples singers used to stay here. I mean, just so many people came through the Lorraine Motel. So it was so much more than the place where Dr. King was assassinated. And we've really worked hard, especially in the last few years, to allow people to understand how much of a place of activity uh, the Lorraine was before that fateful uh, moment. It was listed in the Green Book. And when it was renovated in uh, 1964, if you go through the Green Books, you'll notice in 64, there's a brand new ad in there for them. And it says air conditioned, right? So that's the big thing that, you know, you can come to the Lorraine Motel and guess what? It's air conditioned. And today we kind of take that for granted. But if you are, if you ever travel through Memphis or the South in July, humidity, the humidity is very, very special. So I can understand why (laughs) air conditioning would be a very, very hot commodity. What I find amazing is that this black family held on to this place all those years. How did they manage to do that? Well, you know, the Baileys were really business-minded. And um, when we look at the uh, oral histories of Walter Bailey, um, he and his first wife, Lori Bailey, uh, really were partners. You know, traditionally people will think that he was just, uh, he was the business owner. And that tends to be the patriarchal, misogynist version of history, right? That the man is the business owner. But he's very clear in how he talks about his wife that, no, they went into this together in 1945 when they had the opportunity to purchase the motel. They said, no, we're going to do this together. We're going to um, purchase this and we're going to start this business together. Not only did they own the motel, but they also owned a farm further out in Shelby County that supplied the produce to support um, the restaurant here. In Early the, farm, farm to, to table. table. Early farm to table, right? Right, yes. right, you know? Dr. King's assassination at the Lorraine Motel impacted the Bailey family in a private way that is heartbreaking. Listening to Dr. Trent recount what happened, I had a very difficult time containing my emotions. It's just too painful. Lori Bailey was actually at the switchboard on April 4th. So when they pick up the phone to call emergency services, she makes the call. And um, she's handling a lot of these initial calls. And then she's on the phone with a friend and says, you know, I'm not feeling well. And she goes to her room, which is the floor above us. And she lays down and she never wakes up. She suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and ultimately passed away on April 9th, 1968. The day of the funeral. The day of the funeral. So for the Baileys, April 9th is also a tragic day for them because she passed away as well as the tragedy that happened on the property. So that's a very... It's a hard time in the history of this building and the history for the family. But Mr. Bailey was able to continue business, even though the hotel went into decline, for about 20 years afterwards. And I think it was just his determination and community support 
around him. I, I think what's also really important around this story of the motel is the community's dedication to memorialize this to Dr. King. Very soon afterwards, people start leaving flowers on the balcony almost within 12 hours. Flowers are being left, a memorial is being formed, and then there's a concrete slab that's currently outside that's dedicated to Dr. King that's put up there. It's held in the window for a period of time, and Room 306 is really held as this place of honor for years, even before the museum is formalized as a concept. And then in the late 1980s, there's talk of what to do with this property because it's it's falling apart and people are like, well, maybe we should make it a parking lot or we should tear down the Lorraine. And the African-American community in Memphis said, absolutely not. So there's campaigns by A.W. Willis, Chuck Scruggs, D'Army Bailey to pull together funds. So people are dropping money off, pulling their pennies together and saying, we're going to save the Lorraine Motel. Business owners are pulling money together. They did fall short, but the state steps in and helps bridge that gap. And that's how we're able to open up the National Civil Rights Museum in 1991. So it's a beautiful story of this building evolving as a marker for not only a safe space for African-Americans during a time when the country's hostile for travel, but also a safe space for us to memorialize a history that's significant to us and for us to continue to deal with these moments in our country where there's continued hostilities. And I think that's the beauty of this building. That's the beauty of being here in this space. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The Bailey's tragic story makes me think of all the other motels in the U.S. where black travelers may have experienced violence and trauma. I thought of all the stories that no one will hear. As we drove the Green Book, I thought about those stories, those voices, those people. How many travelers come to the Lorraine Motel carrying those private stories that connect them personally to the events here? We're aware that that this place, people come in already keyed up. From the moment you see the marquee, people anticipate. They know what happened here. What they don't know is how we're going to unpack that story for them. The people who become the individuals that we know as the leaders of the civil rights movement, the, the ancestors of African Americans, were not blank slates. They were not primitive folks. They are descendant of 
individuals who had sophisticated languages. They were descendants of people who had practiced various religions, artwork. They came to the Americas with a whole system of things and thinking and philosophies, and they bring that to them. But there's a fundamental resistance to oppression that exists within the human spirit. And that is brought with them as well. I think the place always feels more intimate than people expect because of the scale of the buildings. Yes. Yeah. I think when people hear motel, they think something different. When they see the famous photograph, Mm -hmm. they think it's larger than it is. I still remember my first visit here. I saw it in the evening. Near sunset. Mm-hmm. And I will always remember, I just thought, it's so small. Everybody who stayed here couldn't avoid encountering the other people who stayed here. And so often, I'm sure families stayed here. Right. Mm-hmm. People would come in big groups and stay mm-hmm. here when there were conferences for the Baptist mm-hmm. Church or mm-hmm. Home Economics Teachers Conference. I can see all of that taking place in this spot. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because in March of 68, Dr. King was planning his Poor People's Campaign. And it was this campaign where he was calling for the country to radically reimagine how we dealt with poverty. And he was asking for poor people all across the country, all backgrounds, to descend on Washington and camp out there until Congress did something. And so he had all of his lieutenants here at the motel strategizing in the conference room. And there was a choir from Prairie View A&M, which is at HBCU here, and their choir director, you mentioned how small it feels, and their choir director found out that Dr. King was on site. And it was the middle of the night because, you know, Dr. King's always busy. And he heard Dr. King was in the conference room. And so... Woke up, all you know, got all the students together, told them to put their clothes on. And it's so funny because you look at the film footage of that moment. Some of them still are they're kind of groggy. Some of the girls <laughs> have, still have curlers <laughs> in their hair. But he rounds them up and they sing for Dr. King. That's so beautiful. But that's idea of this space being so intimate that you couldn't help but be inside. You can only imagine that the director ran into, you know, maybe ran into Ralph Abernathy or somebody. He was like, yeah, Dr. King's here. You think we could? I could have my students come sing for him? And he's running up and down the hallways, yes. <laughs> grabbing the students and saying, you got to go sing. Let's go. We're going to sing this song. Everybody tune up. Don't embarrass me. Exactly. <laughs> do, do you know what they sang for Dr. King? Oh, gosh. It was a classical piece, and goodness, I don't know it off of um, the top of my head, but I I think it's like Jesus, Love of Man or something like that. Mm. But it's a really beautiful piece, and they sang it a cappella. Wow. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. The joy of Dr. King receiving that late-night serenade, to me, is fraught with deep irony given what comes later. No one could have foreseen it, 
and the Baileys' lives would be affected by the assassination in unimaginable ways. So after King was assassinated, did Mr. Bailey lock off that room? Yes. And it was never rented out after that? Never rented out again. And left exactly the way it was? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. That's amazing. What we have now is a reproduction of how it was set up because we have so many photographs of the room. But yeah, Mr. Bailey was was very particular about honoring that space. He had a deep sense of the moment. But, you know, he and his son-in-law were also the ones who had to clean up the balcony. You know, people forget that once when a crime is committed— The police come in, they do what they need to do, but the police don't clean up. Law enforcement never cleans up. They take all the evidence that they need, but whatever's left over is the responsibility of the property owner to clean up. So once law enforcement leaves, Mr. Bailey and his son-in-law had to clean everything up. So there's photographs of Mr. Bailey in the middle of the night having to clean up. So there's a... There's a gravitas of that moment that I don't think any of us will ever truly understand. I agree. But Mr. Bailey and his son-in-law, Dr. Champion, because I think there's an intimacy and there's a sacredness in cleaning up the remains of the dead, right? And there's an honor in that. And, and Dr. Champion's still alive uh, today. And so there's there's something there that even when I've talked to him about it, that you can tell he's willing to talk about certain things, but there's, there's emotionality there that I don't think we'll ever really see revealed because that space, that moment is filled with something that is levels that cannot be excavated. Yes. Deeply personal. Yeah. Beyond philosophical mm-hmm. core, it's at the core of who he is. And that some things can't be shared. They just can't be shared. You can't. You can't. The Lorraine Motel had to be preserved. How to do it was the challenge. We have to remember that this was a time in America when a lot of places like it were being erased in, quote, the name of progress. It's still surprising to me that this place survived urban renewal, or as we call it, Negro, Negro removal. removal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think I think the way that it was able to survive was very unique in that, yes, downtown Memphis in the 70s and 80s was going through a big transition, right? And at the point when that was happening— It could have gone the other way, but because there's this big community preservation effort, it really did stop that. And so that is really exciting that we were able to do that um, and that we were able to create a footprint for the museum to be preserved um, because the state owns the museum and it's on the register. It protects the facade of the museum. In 2002, the museum bought the boarding house across the street. So that expanded the footprint as well as the park across the street so it protects the view. So there's a lot of work being done to help ensure that 
as well as there are other efforts happening to further protect this area. So, you know, this sort of preservation is long term, but you have a lot of stakeholders involved and people really committed to making this work happen. And um, so the goal with um, historic building preservation is not just to preserve the building, but to preserve the area around it, to protect that for generations to come. The highest level of preservation in the world is world heritage status, and that's getting the United Nations to recognize the value of that. And they want to know that that you have your state and local communities and your federal government around to understand that level of protection, but that you can make a case that's beyond one person, that you can relate this story beyond that moment. And so it's not just about April 4th. It's about the work of the Baileys. It's about how we look at how we mourn and how we choose to commemorate a movement that looked at a community in the United States that's been historically oppressed and has continued to have to fight to be seen as human and whose work in that arena has inspired generations of people throughout the globe, whether it's resistance in Central America, Latin America, decolonization in Africa, heck, even folks in the solidarity movement in Poland. I was surprised to learn that they were like, we modeled what we did to kick out the communist on what John Lewis and everybody was doing in the 60s in the southern U.S. I mean, I have modern politicians told me that point. So we have a way to say that. And so our goal is just to get other people to recognize and say, okay, let's build the protections around it and save this place. The Lorraine Motel, like the many people and places we visited on our journey driving the Green Book, is a testament to the rich and inspiring legacy African Americans have built in the face of centuries of injustice and discrimination. Our trip exploring Green Book locations has been much more than a drive from Detroit to New Orleans. It has been a journey not just to places, but into people's rich memories, experiences, and insights. We hope you found a connection to the people we featured, their voices, their stories, their down-to-earth wisdom. And in listening, we hope you found connections to your families, your friends, to your communities, and maybe even to someone you've had trouble connecting with in the past. Many of the stories we heard were difficult, painful, and shocking while others were funny and told with a dose of irony and wit. But most importantly, nearly every story ended in a way that showed how the storyteller had made his or her peace with what had happened without forgetting it. Happily for us, these storytellers chose to share the most important thing, the wisdom they gained about themselves, about others, and about America. That's all for this final episode of Driving the Green Book. I, along with my producer, Janae Woods-Weber, thank you for joining us. The Negro Motorist Green Book inspired the route we took and connected us to the people along our journey. I truly marvel at the people who lived through such difficult, mean-spirited times in America and still 
like Victor Hugo Green, maintain their spirit of hope and optimism. I want to leave you with the words of wisdom Frank Figures shared with us, and I hope they, too, inspire the same hope in you. I'm going to do what I can with what I have where I am in order to make a better life and a fair deal. Special thanks to Dr. Noel Trent, the Lorraine Motel, and the National Civil Rights Museum. The Lorraine Motel is already designated a National Historical Site, but its leaders want to have it assigned World Heritage Site status. And you might be able to help. Dr. Trent encourages people to send letters of support to the museum explaining what the motel means to them, how it has affected them, please send letters to fmorris at civilrightsmuseum.org. Driving the Green Book is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It is created, narrated, and produced by Alvin Hall and edited by Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Sound design and original theme song by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua-Williams & Co. Field production by Oluwakeme Aladasui. Janae Woods-Weber is the associate producer with additional production support by Jasmine Faustino, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, and Becky Celestina. Kathy Doyle is the Macmillan Podcast's vice president. Subscribe to Driving the Green Book on Apple Podcasts. While you're listening, you can also explore the road trip locations behind the show using our custom Apple Maps guide. Find a link to this experience, curated music playlists, details about my upcoming book, and more at drivingthegreenbook.com. If you'd like to share your own stories about the Green Book with us, email us at greenbook at macmillan.com. We would love to hear from you. I'm Alvin Hall. Thank you for listening and safe travels. As we sign off, we leave you with a full version of the movingly elegant original score from sound designer Cedric Wilson.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.